Okay, I'm going to encourage you to take a copy of the scriptures now and turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. As you're turning there, uh, Elizabeth came across a funny article this week and sent it along to me, and uh, we had several good chuckles out of it. The title of the article was this, 25 Unbelievable Things Search Committees Said to Pastoral Candidates. It was a particularly funny article because we've recently been through that process uh, as a couple, as a church, and uh, I'm very thankful to say, though, that none of these particular questions or comments was said to me or my wife during the process of us coming here to sojourn. But nevertheless, I had a lot of fun coming up with some snarky replies to a few of these questions and comments. These were actually said to potential pastors or staff members at real churches in the U.S. Here we go. Our last pastor preached for 18 minutes. Can you keep it under 20 minutes? And my short answer to that is not a chance, as you all have experienced. Another comment was made to another individual. The salary is low, but we will pay you a commission for each new tithing family that joins the church. That actually could work out pretty well. Is that like commission on what they give or just commission based on them giving? I mean, that's a big distinction. Another couple was told this. We do monthly cleaning inspections of the parsonage. You will need to make sure your wife keeps it clean. So Elizabeth's response for this would be, and what time would we be coming to your house for the monthly cleaning inspection? Another search team told the pastor or asked the pastor, do you mind if we have a Christmas tree in the pulpit? Seems like that could get a little crowded up here, but okay. Another church told the wife or told a uh, potential pastor, your wife can't take a job outside the home because she'll be too busy at the church. So the comment to that would be, well, thanks for the heads up. What is her salary going to be, right? And then uh, the final one that I got a kick out of, would you be willing to shave your facial hair? (laughs) Absolutely not. Not unless you want a pastor that looks like he's 12. (laughs) These are unbelievable and hilarious. But then there were some that were just frankly nauseating. I'm going to read a few of those. And I hope they make you feel uncomfortable. They ought to. When discovering a pastoral candidate had a physical disability, one search committee person said, oh, we don't want a pastor that's disabled. You have to stand while you're preaching. I even hesitate to read this one. I'm quoting directly. One search team member told, asked a pastor, what do you think about coloreds in the church? The author of the article adds, sadly, several racist questions were asked, including one church that used extremely inappropriate racial language. And then the final question that I'll read off here is, what is your position on interracial marriages? Question for you. Among those who profess to follow Jesus, is there a place for the prejudice that these questions demonstrate. 
as soon as I brought up racism in the context of a church gathering, there's probably invariable, invariably multiple reactions. Invisibly, lines have been drawn automatically. Because if you've grown up in America, you've been formed, you've been discipled by your culture to relate everything back to politics. But can I just state this at the outset this morning? We are not talking politics, and we're not giving talking points. Some may hear a word like racism and say, I'm all set in this department. I'm definitely not prejudiced in that way, but go get them. Everyone else needs to hear that. But prejudicial bias shows up within the church in many more ways than simply judging according to skin color or ethnicity. So before we move on, let's just read one verse together, Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, and I'm asking you to read this out loud with me on the screen. Colossians 3, verse 11. Read this with me. Here then is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This verse highlights the main distinction that ex- distinctions that existed between people in Paul's day. He names the Greeks, which is probably a catch-all term for non-Jewish speaking peoples, a term like Gentile. And then he names the Jews. He further highlights that distinction a second time by noting the two phrases circumcision and uncircumcision, physical descriptions of ethnic Jews or those who converted to the Jewish religion as opposed to those outside of the Jewish religion, the uncircumcised. The next two terms, barbarian and Scythian, were used of groups considered to be culturally inferior non-Greek-speaking peoples. The Jews considered the barbarians typically coming from the north, to be enemies, and they despised the Scythians from the south. And then you have another group. The third grouping focuses on economic disparity, slave and those who were free men and women. So if you think about it, with these eight terms, there are at least these distinctions within them. You have Ethnic, religious, physical, linguistic, regional, and economic distinctions, just in those terms. And I point that out simply to know that it's tempting to think well of ourselves when it comes to prejudices. So just for a moment, let's name the superficial and shallow distinctions that exist within our country, the sorts of distinctions that either unconsciously or consciously we use to classify people around us. And just to be clear, this is also going to be an uncomfortable exercise. And that's okay. Let's just roll with it. Political party distinctions. Republican, Democrat, Independent. Political leaning. Liberal, conservative, moderate. Housing status distinctions. The homeowner, the renter, the government housing dweller, the homeless. Citizen status distinctions. You have the citizen 
the legal immigrant, the green card worker, the illegal immigrant, and the dreamers, children of illegal immigrants who are born in the States. And then you've got skin color differences, black, white, brown, yellow. Then you have ethnicities, black, white, Hispanic, Latino, Asian, Middle Eastern, and we could just go on and on. Then you have community of choice distinctions, city dwellers, suburban dwellers, rural people, farm people, mountain people. Physical characteristics, you have the able-bodied and the disabled. Mental health distinctions, those who appear mentally healthy and those who are clearly mentally ill. Then we have distinctions in parentage, natural-born children, adopted children, foster children. Generational distinctions, boomer, millennial, Gen Z. Regional distinctions, East Coasters, West Coasters, Third Coasters, Midwesterners, Southerners, Yankees. Education level differences, high school dropouts, high school graduates, tech school graduates, college graduates, college dropouts, grad school graduates. Education philosophy differences. This is getting old, isn't it? Homeschooled, private schooled, public school, classically educated. Economic status, uber rich, wealthy, upper middle class, middle class, the poor. And then job status, business owner, employer, entrepreneur, hourly wage employee, salary employee, or unemployed. I list all of these different ways of defining and classifying individuals, not to make a comment upon each one, but rather to demonstrate just how easy it is to classify one another and just how many ways we can choose to classify one another. But first, let's be clear, it is not wrong to acknowledge differences in diversity. Naming that fact that God created the beauty of melanin in skin and then chose to limit that pigment in some individuals more than others, naming that reality is not wrong. It's not wrong to name the reality that there are those with jobs and those without jobs, those with homes and those who own their homes and those who rent and those without homes. That recognition is not sinful. It's not anti-gospel. But when those differences give way to prejudice, disliking or distrusting those in another group, or partiality, being unfairly biased towards those in another group, we are acting in an anti-gospel, anti-good news way. And the bad news is that that tendency runs deeper than we think. The tendency towards prejudice and partiality is as old as the fall as self. Because when Adam blamed Eve for his own sin, he created mistrust and hurt, and anger, and division, and a line was drawn, and sides were taken. We believe at Sojourn that the gospel is for every person and for all of life. So if that's true, then the gospel must 
speak hope into our prejudices and our partiality. So this morning, I want to invite us to lay down our internal posture of reactivity, of line drawing, of argumentation as we look at our prejudice and the person of Jesus. And rather than stating our big idea at the beginning and then working from it, we're going to work towards our big idea. And we're going to do so by looking at four new realities that exist for those who follow Jesus. And these are our four new realities. We have a new home, a new humanity, a new distinction, and a new dignity. So number one, a new home. Because of the gospel, you are united to Jesus in the heavenly reality. Now, if I sound like a broken record a little bit the last couple of weeks, stuck on this idea or on the phrases of union with Jesus or united to Christ, that's intentional. Everything in the Christian life comes back to this reality. Do you remember chapter 3, verses 1 through 4? Paul says that the believer has died to the old world, the, the old broken world that is not submitted to the lordship of Jesus with all its values and its priorities and its realities. Rather, the believer has been raised with Christ into a new heavenly reality, a world characterized by heavenly realities. And the necessary consequences of of this is that we are to seek heavenly realities. And what does that look like? Well, he moves on to chapter, chapter 3, verses 5 through 12, and tells us that because this is true, because we've died to the old world, and because we are to seek heavenly realities, that means we are to lay aside the old world manner of living. So several weeks ago, we looked at the the fact that that means we take off the old clothes of sexual immorality. Last week, we looked at the fact that we're to take off the old clothes of divisive, sinful communication. And this week, we look at the reality that we're to take off the old clothes of sinful prejudices. So, follower of Jesus, hear this. Your new home is in Christ, united to Him and with Christ, seated with Him in the heavenly places. Yes, you are seated in a building in Chattanooga, but you are in Christ nonetheless. Therefore, the earthly ways of determining what unites and what divides individuals, what makes us feel at home and uncomfortable among one group of people, or at home and comfortable in one group of people, and not at home and uncomfortable in another group, all of those realities of necessity fall away among those who follow Jesus. Our home, where we belong, where we are secure and loved and known has nothing to do with superficial realities like if we have the same skin color as our neighbor or whether or not you and I voted for the same presidential candidate in the last election. So we have a new home. Number two, we have a new humanity. Because of the gospel, you are incorporated into a new humanity. We spent some time on this last week, but this truth is too beautiful that we need to repeat it. Adam, you'll remember, was created as the head of humanity, as the representative. 
He was priest in the Garden of Eden. He was made in the image of God, and he represented mankind to God and God to mankind. But what happened? Our representative rebelled. All in God's plan, he then raised up a corporate new humanity, the nation of Israel. They were to be God's representative people to the nations and the nation by whom others could encounter the true and living God. But Israel rebelled over and over and over and over. And when the fullness of time was come, God sent his Son, truly human after Adam, but without sin and a true ethnic Israelite. And what does that mean? Well, it means this. This gentleman is particularly helpful at this point. Beale says, Christ came to fulfill all that Adam and the corporate Adam, Israel, was to be. Thus, Christ as true Israel and Christ as last Adam are two ways of saying virtually the same thing. To be incorporated into Christ as true Israel and last Adam is to be true humanity. In the new creation, I'll add, of which you and I have entered into by grace through faith and repentance towards our Lord Jesus Christ, in this new creation there are no nationalistic or racial distinction that determine a person's ultimate identity. The determiner of that identity in that new sphere is Christ. So, to be a follower of Jesus, then, is to be freed to be truly human. Truly human as we follow the true embodiment of humanity, Jesus Christ. And in this true humanity, prejudice and partiality fall away, or more accurately, are put away. But our prejudices are strong aren't they? We shake our head when we hear clips of Nazis in Germany spewing filth concerning Jews, the disabled, or the mentally ill. And we ought to feel ill when we read of the founder of Planned Parenthood, Margaret Sanger, who was a white supremacist, who also argued that those with undesirable traits and mental illnesses should be sterilized for the betterment of society. And we wonder how people can be so deceived and so prejudicial. But our own prejudices are ingrained within us that we often don't see them. We confessed our sin out loud together this morning that, or we confess the reality that sometimes we sin in ignorance and weakness. And our prejudice can arrive from our own weakness as human beings and our own ignorance of our own stories, our families of origin, our experiences, our perception. All of those things have shaped us and our prejudices. So, how can we determine in this new humanity that Jesus has brought us into if those prejudices still exist? Well, obviously our actions can betray it, right? That's that's pretty obvious, but I'd like us to think of two non-obvious ways. How about our reactions and our words? Let me ask you just a couple of questions related to our reactions. 
when you see a certain type of person that would fall into any of the categories we referenced earlier, any category of which you are not a part, what is your initial reaction? When you see someone of a different skin color walking downtown, what do you automatically assume about their situation? When you see a mentally ill homeless person, how do you react internally? When you hear someone voted for the wrong candidate, what is your gut reaction towards them? Our unchecked, unplanned, unintended reactions often betray our prejudices. But so also can our words. And perhaps your mind immediately goes to racially charged words or phrases. And of course, that's included, but that's not what I'm referring to. This past week, I came across another helpful article, and it was titled this, Dear Christian, It's Not Us Versus Them. The article described how an us versus them mentality tends to emphasize conflict at the expense of relationships and reconciliation. So if you find yourself thinking in words or speaking in language that otherizes people, those kinds of people, those Democrats, those Republicans, those illegal immigrants, those progressives, those West Coasters, those blacks, those whites, you may be revealing that you are prejudicially biased. Because when we talk or think like this, we are no longer thinking in terms of God's image bearers who are themselves both broken and beautiful, sinners and sufferers just like you and me. Rather, we are otherizing people. We are viewing and treating a person or a group of people as intrinsically different from ourselves defined by only one reality among millions that set them apart as a unique person. And in so doing, we set them in a category of which we aren't a part and to which we can't relate. I hope that many of us mentally squirmed a few moments ago as I described how a professing Christian asked about racial diversity in the church using the phrase or word, coloreds. To describe non-whites. That sort of otherizing is despicable. And brothers and sisters, when we begin to view and define human beings, not as individuals made in God's image, but as mere members of a collective whole, defining them solely by any other single unifying reality, flattening their humanity, then we are guilty of dishonoring their creator. And we are guilty of ignoring their broken and beautiful humanity in a way that is equally despicable. This is tough stuff for us to swallow. This is not comfortable. And I promise you the Spirit has been pressing this home in my heart this week probably more than he will in yours. 
So sometimes, even as we reevaluate our actions and our reactions and our words, our prejudicial bias can still escape our notice. So what then? Does the gospel have any hope for us at that point? And the answer is, of course, yes, because this is where the power of the gospel enters with true freedom. Remember, the gospel frees us to admit we are broken individuals, and that means it frees us to admit that we are prejudicially biased in ways we don't see and can't see. And from there, that means the gospel frees us to give the community of Jesus the church, our brothers and sisters in Christ, the freedom to speak into our lives, to lovingly ask if our words and our phrases and our descriptions are accurate representations of reality or if they actually point to something prejudicial in our hearts. And giving others this freedom then gives us the opportunity to explore with the Holy Spirit what they might bring to us. And if needed, we then repent of that prejudice and we return in faith once again to the gospel and the hope that is found there. So how does the gospel bring hope that we can overcome something so deeply ingrained as our prejudicial bias? Well, Beale once again is so helpful here. Look at this quote. Our position in the old Adam has been spiritually destroyed and replaced by the last Adam, Jesus, so that one is now only in the last Adam. This fact progressively gives one strength to be renewed and overcome ongoing indwelling sin in this old world and fallen body. So brothers and sisters, this is the good news of the gospel. We have been given a new home, and we have been given and brought into a new humanity that rises from the ashes of our brokenness through the power of the Spirit and treats men and women as God's image bearers, both inside and outside of the church. But there's a third reality, and that third reality is we have been given a new distinction. Through the gospel, Jesus becomes the defining distinction. The Lord Jesus Christ reminds us through his apostle Paul in our verse this morning that Jesus Christ is all. As one man says, the only person in the new creation, the renewed new man, is Jesus. Others are there only as they have been incorporated into him. Therefore, if one wants to be in that new creation, that person must first be in Christ. So what is Paul doing? Paul is giving to us the only appropriate and important distinction between men and women since Jesus walked the face of the planet. And what is that distinction? Whether someone is in Christ or outside of Christ. That is the distinction that matters. So unless we refuse to define others by shallow externals, and unless we begin to recognize our commonality among all men and women, that we are human beings made in God's image in need of His grace through Jesus, unless we do that, we are working against God and His plan to reconcile all things to Himself through Jesus. 
The gospel tells us that Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, is the only appropriate defining distinction by which all of mankind will ultimately divide it. Those outside of Jesus do not deserve our animosity nor our prejudice. They deserve our sacrificial love and compassion. Those outside of Jesus need, do not need our nationality, our skin color, our civic values, our work ethic, our traditions. What they need is our untiring, unqualified, unconditional love and devotion and pity and compassion and energy. In short, they need our humanity. Why? Because for those outside of Christ, the best is not yet to be. The best is here and now. And when we recognize that what is at stake is not ultimately our political power or the power of our political party, it's not ultimately our ethno-linguistic comfort of being surrounded by those who look like us and speak like us and think like us, what is at stake is not ultimately our economic well-being or even the prosperity of our country, nor is it the endurance of our national ideas or the restoration of America to some ideal that we have set, whatever we conceive that to be. That is not ultimately what's at stake. What is at stake is the eternal and everlasting joy of men and women whose chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Who, unless they turn from their rebellion and turn to Jesus, will find themselves glorifying God through the just execution of his wrath unable to enjoy the blessing of his presence to comfort and feeling only the presence or the terror of his presence to judge because we have a new distinction jesus the stakes have been raised so we have a new home a new humanity a new distinction fourth we have a new dignity, a new dignity. Through the gospel, Jesus beautifies and dignifies our diversity. Paul says not only that Christ is all, but that Christ is in all. And that statement reveals the beautiful reality that Jesus doesn't flatten our diversity into uniformity. No, rather, he dignifies and beautifies the diversity of his new humanity. Jesus does not say, I need y'all to look like me if you're going to follow me. Nor do his followers say to others, I need you to look like me, talk like me, have my experiences, share elements of my story if we're going to relate as fellow human beings. You see, in Paul's day, it was a beautiful thing. It was a revolutionary thing to say that Jesus was in every believer, whether Jew or Gentile, whether circumcised or uncircumcised, whether barbarian or Scythian, a traditional enemy of God's people, or a member of a group despised traditionally by the people of God. And today, this is still good news. 
It is good news that no matter your ethnicity, no matter your socioeconomic status, no matter your educational level, no matter your abilities, your politics, the gospel is for every person and for all of life. And Christ dignifies the diversity of his new creation by indwelling those who submit to his lordship. And if you are in Christ, Christ is in you. And that reality is beautifying and dignifying. If you're sitting here and you are not yet a Christian, maybe you're exploring Christianity, or maybe you find yourself evaluating the claims of Christianity from your perspective on the way out the door, but you also find yourself disenchanted with the division in our world. Grieving over the prejudices at work in your neighborhood and your city and in your country. Then can I simply offer to you this invitation? Come to Jesus. In Jesus, in his person alone, is answered all your longings for harmony as well as for the beauty of diversity. He is making all things new. Revelation tells us that eternity will be one incredibly diverse group of people celebrating the Lord Jesus Christ from every tribe, language, people, and nation unified together around the only real defining distinction, Jesus broken and beautiful image bearers of God, restored, reconciled, dignified, glorified, dwelling with God. That is what we have to look forward to. And until that day, here is our big idea. Jesus calls you to follow him by putting away your prejudices. So as we move towards a response from hearing God's word this morning, let's confess our sin and return to the one who is truly human and who incorporates us into his true humanity. And then let's move out by faith in the power of the gospel to put away our prejudices, replacing them with love and delight in the image bearers of God who are all around us. Because Jesus calls us to follow him by putting away our prejudices. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, it is our sincere desire that you would be exalted and lifted up among us as a people. We are hungry and longing for the day when you will return and you will finish making all things new. And we will rejoice with brothers and sisters from every tribe and ethnicity, people group, skin color. And we will with one voice glorify you. But until that day, Father, we confess we are prejudicial people. And we hate that we are.
but we are. So, Father, forgive us for our prejudices. Give us light to uncover them and see them as you see them. And then give us grace to repent and return to Jesus. Father, we pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.